0: Hello and welcome to CityWare Selectors, a podcast, Let's Talk About ESG, which for the time being will be also rebranded in Let's Talk About COP, given the conference happening in Glasgow in a month's time. To so joining me today is Andy Howard, Global Head of Sustainable Investment at Schroeders. Andy, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here
0: important question to start from I think is uh, what do you expect from COP26 in terms of the outcomes? What would be a successful good outcome let's say and what would constitute maybe something less desirable from your perspective as head of responsible investments uh, at an asset management company?
1: Well I think COP26 will really be an important step on the the wider journey towards decarbonisation that we have begun to see playing out over the last few years and it's really about ensuring the momentum that has started to build from national announcements um, really continues going forward. Um, And I I think the point that I would make up front is that I don't think we can underestimate the scale of the challenge or the degree of changes that are gonna be needed to meet the targets that will keep long run temperature rises to um, acceptable levels. Um, Limiting long run temperature rises to the one and a half degree level that um, the IPCC and others have have focused on is going to mean cutting emissions annually at around about 6% a year for the next decade. And to try and put that in context, that's roughly the level of emissions reduction that we saw last year. Um, But that level of emissions reduction that that occurred clearly during a a global crisis with COVID being sustained year over year, for a decade is not going to happen on its own. This is not going to be something which changes organically, and the role and the importance of a of COP 26, a global conference which really does focus attention on and and you know, uh, at a political level and a societal level on catalysing positive momentum and positive traction to that tra- transition, is going to be really critical. This is the conference where countries five years on from Paris, and I realise. That, that we're now six years on from Paris, but obviously this was delayed, um, this is the conference where countries are, are intending to come back with revised national commitments. Um, if I look back to Paris back in 2015 clearly at a global level, the, the agreement to limit long run temperature rises to no more than two degrees and to aim for one and a half was. A global commitment in the right direction, if you look at what individual countries were committing to subsequent to Paris it added up to well over two degrees, closer to three degrees, in terms of the scale of their national ambitions. And we've seen a lot of change, particularly over the last 18 months or so, with a a significant number of countries around the world
0: so when we are talking about uh, your position as head of responsible investment at an asset manager, so obviously the conference is long, it's two weeks, so there are multiple sessions there, and some of them are targeted more at policymakers opposite to investors. So from your perspective, are there any specific aspects of the conference that resonate with what Shredders is doing that you will be watching very closely?
1: Well, I think I mean, the, the obvious answer is around climate finance and how do we go about mobilizing this, because I think there's as, as, as much as clear there's, there is a significant amount of capital that will need to be invested or reallocated between different areas of the economy in order to reach uh, a two degree transition or, or a one and a half degree transition. Um, the need for that mobilization is clear. And the asset management industry, the finance industry more broadly, will be at the heart of that of that transition and the heart of facilitating and supporting the reallocation of capital within economies. But I also think that actually, the, the key question is on the prospect of a more holistic conclusion. So I don't think this is just about individual sessions. All of these things tie together. We talked about kind of the role of emerging economies or, or, or developing economies in terms of the transition. We talked about just transition. We've talked about the need for climate finance. All of these things come together because ultimately reaching a global agreement requires all of these pieces to line up such that we can reach a global agreement on a clear path forward. And that's going to be really the key. I think for our industry, there has been for too long too much uncertainty or questions about is this going to play out, in what way, how quickly will will we see this play out? I think we as an organisation here are past the point where we see this as being a a future possibility. It has become a future probability, and it's one that we are preparing for. Um, But I do think that in terms of mobilising the industry more broadly, a very clear and unambiguous message that this is the path that we are on and we are committed to accelerating rather than decelerating going forward is going to be important. And the way that that will be reached isn't about individual sessions at COP. It's really about ensuring that there's different strands and the different topics that are discussed Collectively, come to an agreement that allows that acceleration to take place.
0: Mm -hmm. And when we think about the impact on asset allocation, are there any decisions that might be reached at the conference that might have quite a profound impact on what you're doing when allocating investments?
1: Well, so again, asset allocation isn't where we start typically when we when we look at this. I think the, the we've done a lot of work, or our economists as well have done a lot of work looking at the implications of the climate transition. Um, for economic growth um, within different countries over the long term. Um, and some of the implications are quite significant uh, and, and that is to some degree um, like re- relates to asset allocation questions. But I actually think the far, the far more important question really is that if we see that a growing level of conviction that that transition and that commitment globally to delivering emissions reductions in line with a one and a half degree goal, a net zero goal is there and is accelerating, the implications will be much more around how do we go about selecting the relative, if I think about this in company terms, the winners and losers within sectors, rather than which sectors do I want to invest in or which sectors do I want to avoid. There will be some obvious winners and losers within this. Now, one of the areas that, that, uh, that COP has focused on is around the use of coal fired power generation. Um, and that will have obvious implications for, for, for industries that are directly exposed. Um, Similarly, we know that there will need to be more investment in clean energy. And again, that will be an industry that will be directly exposed. But really, it's, it's also as much about everything else that is more indirectly or less obviously impacted and understanding the implications of higher carbon prices, understanding the implications of reallocating capital, of the need to change business models, which companies within industries are preparing for that more quickly, which companies are ahead of that curve, or which companies are sort of sitting on the sidelines and hoping that this doesn't happen and that will be the the question that will separate the winners from the losers as uh, and i think certainly in our mind will be a more important question than than purely an asset allocation to to a large degree it sort of impacts on both but but i equally think this isn't ultimately about asset allocation in the the sense that we can pull this lever and pull that lever and, and reallocate assets a little bit at the margin from from this area to that area this is fundamentally going to require us to think about the sources of risk and opportunities across all of the individual investment decisions that are made within a broader portfolio rather than simply thinking about which parts or which types of assets or sectors do I want to be exposed to.
0: Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned briefly carbon pricing. So One thing I've heard is that people are desiring for some certain global standard to be set. And do you think this is something that is necessary and what kind of impact might that have depending on where the price actually ends up being set?
1: Well, I think look, it is an interesting topic. And carbon pricing is the sort of the, the go-to lever for many governments. It's, it has become very widely used. Um, if you look at the sort of the, the the breadth of countries around the world that are using carbon pricing there. Um, the challenge, I think, in many ways is we need a degree of global coordination in the sense that it allows individual parts of the world to move more quickly and to be more aggressive in terms of creating markets, creating pricing that is... in. Uh, more restrictive has more of a desired effect in terms of creating a penalty to uh to to, to, to impose a cost on carbon emissions and to incentivizing a way, a shift away from intensive activities and one of the challenges i think has historically been that we've had some parts of the world that have moved more quickly and more aggressively and concerns about risks undermining domestic industries so i do think that having a degree of global coordination global consistency is important because it allows everybody to move further and faster without being concerned that they're undermining their domestic industries by imposing costs that aren't being imposed elsewhere in the world. I know that's, you know, I think, in the scheme of things, a somewhat narrow way to look at it. But, but I think that has been one of the hurdles to seeing faster action and uh, within individual within individual blocks historically, and that level of global coordination. I think will be important. We are beginning to see that to some degree happening a little bit organically, clearly with the introduction of a carbon trading scheme in China over the last few years, we now have, um, obviously the EU remains uh, a very major trading scheme globally. We're beginning to see some elements of that, the carbon border adjustment taxes that have been discussed as well, kept past some of those, some of those challenges. Um, although you know, practically, there's still a lot of questions about how they will work in in practice. But I think similarly, if we can, if if we do see an outcome here that does create a more globally coordinated framework approach um, to uh, to carbon pricing, that would be a significantly positive step forward.
0: Mm-hmm. And if we elaborate a little bit on separating winners from losers, because uh, obviously there are some sectors that will struggle just generally for survival, like thermal coal, if any kind of ban is going to be introduced, that's going to be hard to justify. And I think some estimates did kind of like point towards that the industry might struggle to survive going forward if we are to align. Um, but in terms of sectors that are the hardest to decor- decarbonize, which ones are those? And more importantly, though, what investors can do actively to help them get there?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting point. So I think when we talk about kind of climate change, people's instinctive thoughts is around Either coal fire, coal being used to, to, to generate power, or wind farms being used to generate power. But if we look at the sort of the four big economic sectors in terms of sources of carbon emissions uh, around power, agriculture and forestry, transport, or industry, um, the solutions in many ways within power are relatively more straightforward. Um, you know, as you say. We have a wide range of price competitive, cost competitive, clean energy solutions that are available and they are being deployed fairly quickly in many parts of the world. That transition is somewhat slow as a result of the the long asset lives in those industries, but that transition and if you like the path forward is relatively well understood. Um, Similarly in transport, certainly in in, in road transport, electrification of vehicles, is understood, is starting to happen, and we're seeing more focus on on that sort of lever. It's when you look at things like industry in particular that I think it becomes more challenging. There's no sort of single bullet answer that resolves the challenges there. And I think, you know, in many cases within those industries, it really is about individual companies themselves establishing a commitment and an intention to decarbonise. This is the distinction between, certainly when we think about companies Do you start from a view of what can we incrementally do over the next few years at the margin in terms of improving efficiency or do you start from a view of here is the here is the destination that we know we need to reach Um, how are we going to go about making the innovations in our business model that will allow us to reach a net zero trajectory um, over the next few decades and the, the reality is that there are there are areas of industry where we don't know what that path looks like and there are areas of industry where we know what the path could look like and we know it's very expensive and not economically competitive today Um, part of that will be about carbon pricing in terms of rebalancing the the competitive playing field but there's also going to need to be an awful lot of innovation in that area to allow that transition to play out so i do think that within industry because it's it's a sounds like a simple term but it's a very diverse it's a very diverse umbrella that covers a wide range of different companies, business models and activities. There's no single simple, this is the solution, we need to put up more wind farms or solar, solar farms um, in the same way that to a certain extent is a slightly clearer path in power. It is gonna be about promoting and demanding that companies in different industries uh, set the path for themselves that are committed to making that transition and supporting the innovation that's going to be required to get us to uh, to, to zero emissions over the long term.
0: Are there any sectors, or segments where the path to net zero is actually not clear at all? So there aren't any kind of like headways into there or kind of like roughly across the board, you actually have some kind of idea where it has to go?
1: Well, I think in most industries, we've got a... This is where it sort of becomes... Uh, in most industries, the destination is clear and we, we have a view of... What are the things that could be done to get us there? The problem is that in a number of those industries, the economics of actually doing that today look very unappealing. Um, given where carbon prices are, given where the maturity of those technologies are, that there are few areas I think where it's a complete black hole. I mean, you've mentioned a few areas so far. One thing that we do know is that the, the fossil fuel or fossil fuel production will have to fall dr- very, very dramatically. By, by, by 2050 if we're going to cut emissions to, to zero. 80% of the world's carbon emissions come from burning fossil fuels, 70, 80%. Um, so we know that that's an area that will be an immediate area of focus. But if I look at most other areas in terms of how do you decarbonize uh, production of steel, production of cement, uh, chemical, chemical industries, these are areas that are carbon intensive, where at this point in time, what are the alternatives? There are alternatives in all of these areas. Those alternatives in many cases are relatively costly. Uh, and relatively uneconomic. So I don't think there are areas which are completely unknown. It's the economics of those that needs to change. And that, in turn, is going to require further investment, further scaling, and the right incentives in order to allow those those technologies to develop and mature.
0: One interesting side event at COP is actually the Investment COP, and there there are a lot of topics covered, be it renewable energy, decarbonizing uh, of shipping and smart cities and etc. So are there any kind of like discussion points that specifically kind of like speak to you well, at Schroeder's or well, maybe something where you've worked on recently, either in terms of writing research on or maybe even making direct investments or introducing strategies even?
1: Well, there, look. There are a number of areas. Um, this this is an area that's been a big focus at Schroders for a number of years and remains so. Um, the uh, I think we have looked at investment or the investment implications as well as the investment opportunities of climate change across a whole range of areas. One of the areas I think, and again, this this doesn't specifically answer your question, but one of one of the areas I think that that is going to become more and more important for our industry is how do we think about Actually, ensuring that we're connecting investment with real world outcomes. Um, what I mean by that is that the importance of being able to connect investment in portfolios with actual tangible reductions in emissions as a result of those investments. And I'm thinking here about kind of real asset investments in things like forestry and other natural capital types of solutions is probably going to become more important. And it's probably going to become a a bigger part of how we need to reach that that goal. I think there's obviously, you know, it's clear that there's been a a lot of demand over the last few years and a lot of investment has gone into uh, clean energy funds and similar kinds of funds. And that we can see reflected in the valuations of many of those companies and the importance of stock selection and valuation discipline has become more important in those areas as a result. But it's also about how do we think more broadly about what the role of finance is and what are the sorts of investment vehicles and products and solutions that we need to create as an industry in order to try and actually play a, a the role that many of our clients and many investors are looking to play in terms of actually tangibly supporting that transition rather as well as just being exposed to the transition through investments in public companies that are that are, that are either you know, developing technologies or creating technologies that are, are going to support decarbonisation or, or are themselves decarbonizing. It's it's about being active players as as well as creating the opportunities for, um, for to benefit from the companies that are themselves transitioning.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it it is a lot about thinking one step ahead. And one thing that comes to mind is the whole situation with wind power that happened in the UK this year, even where there was an expectation of being strong enough to kind of cover the demand. And then they had to put the coal-powered uh, power station back on just because there wasn't enough wind, which is as uh, interesting as it sounds for someone who lives in the UK actually is the reality. So thinking about that, you um, c- c- cannot help but wonder that storage of renewable energy is mm-hmm. the next step you need to take.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So from your perspective, is this something that we need to think more about to kind of like offset or even kind of like prevent a similar situation happening
1: again? Well, I think it's always been clear that storage is going to be, you know, a, a, an important part of this equation and, a, and an increasingly important part, particularly once you start seeing levels of renewable energy usage or clean energy usage within national energy mixes rising above um, uh, above the levels that you know we've started to see approached in many parts of the world. You need to start then thinking about, given that we know that some of these sources of power are intermittent, um, given we know that, that uh, the ability to sort of uh, balance power demand versus the availability of, of power generation is going to become more important. Storage, you know, unequivocally will become a more important part of the equation. I do think, you know, similarly, a lot of the work that we've done in this area does imply that the costs of storage generally are coming down in many parts of the world. Um, that will be that is a, a a positive development. But clearly, there's also more investment and more uh, cost reduction that that we would hope to see as that investment plays out. Um, Going forward, so I think storage, you're absolutely right, is a critical part of this. What that looks like of where is that energy stored? Is it stored centrally? Is it stored uh, in a distributed way? Um, What that looks like, and how do we connect that with that sort of broader uh, transition that we're seeing? So, again, thinking about the kind of the role of electric vehicles, which are themselves kind of large moving batteries in some ways, to the need to store energy is similarly going to have to be how we think about this in a joined up holistic plan, rather than thinking about these things simply in isolation one by one.
0: Andy, mm-hmm. and one important thing to keep in mind is obviously that asset managers can do a lot uh, and obviously can impact companies and vote in a certain way and then engage with them, but without policy that actually incentivizes those companies to go down the decarbonization rate or to upgrade their business models you can't go anywhere. So from your perspective, even like if you take the UK as an example, what would be the policy that actually helps to move it forward? And from your perspective, especially as head of responsible investments at the US management company?
1: Well, I think it's interesting because policy sort of broadly speaking, I think I certainly think of it in, in sort of three levels. And so you've got the sort of the Paris accord type policy, which is a global it's not really a policy, but sort of a, a globally agreed ambition which is shared collectively amongst many individual countries. You've got that then transitions into or moves into the stage that we've seen really over the last 18 months or so, which is many more individual countries themselves making commitments at a national level in terms of their own decarbonization plans. We're now at a point where some 70 plus percent of the world's economy in terms of GDP has made a commitment to, to net zero emissions, typically by around about a 2050 timeframe. Um, and so we've kind of moved from shared global ambition to identified national ambition. And the third step of that process, which we are beginning to see but need to see more of, which is where it really becomes tangible, is how does that translate into national policy action? So in terms of, for example, in this country, the phasing out of internal combustion engines, uh, that is a, a consequence of national decarbonisation plans. But that's also the bit where it becomes tangible and real in terms of the implications for individual industries. It ceases to be a sort of an esoteric, if you like, uh, national goal and becomes a practical, tangible implication for individual industries where the implications for what those companies and what those industries need to do become clear. And as you say, the, the, the path forward becomes uh, a much more straightforward one. I would say that from our point of view, you know, the need for policy is, is, is clearly there. That is how we will get that coordination, that acceleration. Nonetheless, we have and we will continue to engage with companies in terms of their own decarbonisation plans, um, even where we don't have as clear a policy outlook as we, as we would like. Um, yeah, the role of asset managers, I think you're absolutely right, is, is partly around how do we identify better positioned companies or better positioned assets to own for the long term. But it is also really important to understand that actually a lot of this transition will play out because today's companies will themselves transition rather than simply about selecting the companies uh, that, that, that have, uh, have, have already chosen to do so. And our ability to encourage, to provide support and to, to hold companies accountable for their own decarbonisation plans is a really critical part of, of active asset management. And I think it's something that's you know, becoming accepted perhaps a little bit more widely as, as a role that asset management critically Will have to play in this transition because this can't simply be about how do we passively observe which companies have have made this plan or made made plans to decarbonize and which companies haven't and then allocating capital to the ones that have already done so this is also about us as active agents in this process playing a role having a voice and having influence over the companies that we invest in and pushing them similarly to make changes where uh, ultimately that will result in more sustainable more durable business models as that uh, net zero transition plays out. Mm
0: -hmm. And in terms of the biggest obstacles, because I think that's a a nice kind of continuation of this conversation. So what do you think are the biggest problematic areas when we think about even kind of like the ultimate decarbonization goals and kind of like what can asset managers even do about it? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I think um, we've seen how hard it is in previous conferences to reach global agreements. Um, Certainly for those of us that have been looking at this for for some time, uh, we're all too aware that we can go into those conferences in expectation that we will see great things agreed and and have often been disappointed. Um, So the the difficulties of getting a global agreement on this scale shouldn't be underestimated um, uh, on, on any individual topics. I think if I look at this sort of in a bit more of a specific way, I think one of the key challenges here will, first of all, be around finance. How do we make sure that there's a sufficient level of finance mobilized and a commitment to mobilizing finance at a national level that allows, in particular, developing or emerging economies to have the support that they need on that transition? Um, We talk about this, the words just transition uh, are are often banded around quite loosely. Um, and it is an absolutely critical aspect that we get the right level of equity and the right level of um, uh, so shared ownership, or sh- shared uh, responsibility in terms of how the transition plays out. But I think we can also look at the just transition, not just as being an ambition, but also a requirement, ensuring that we are coordinating and that we are thoughtful and equitable in terms of how the responsibilities for future transitions play out, That this, the right levels of support. Are provided to those economies that perhaps have fewer resources today to be able to support that transition is going to be critical. And I think, again, particularly in the context of cash-strapped governments around the world, particularly in the context of all of the the other challenges that are happening elsewhere, ensuring that there is a, as a global challenge, we need a global agreement. And as a global agreement, we similarly need countries around the world to recognize that this is a shared problem and that uh, climate finance and the right level of support to emerging economies to make that transition is going to be critical. And so I do think there is, to some degree, there will be a tension between concerns um, around the current state of economies and the current state of government finances in many parts of the world, on the one hand, with the need to ensure that we're getting the right level of financial flows, in particular to those economies that have got work to do and perhaps don't have the resources themselves um, as easily to, to be able to finance that.
0: Mm -hmm. so are you alluding to the green financing gap in emerging markets would that be the way you're thinking about it
1: exactly exactly um so it's really is i think around i mean that's certainly one of the key elements certainly that we're watching very closely obviously as an asset management industry the question of how we ensure that financial flows um grow to the degree that they need to grow is a a critical part of that but as you say that green financing gap which still exists Notwithstanding the fact that we are seeing more capital being put into uh, green finance, more, uh, broadly defined, um, there is still more that needs to be done. And we need to really try to use this as a springboard to mobilise more of that, uh, that that financing going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. And when we talk about developed markets well even when we zoom into the uk as well i think there is an element of just transition that applies to developed world as well when we think about the jobs creation for example or jobs that are going to be squeezed out if for example we'll reduce well coal plants and things like that so are you thinking about it from that perspective as well
1: yeah absolutely i mean look i mean i think if you look back um for example the eu and you look at the uh, commitments that were made in terms of how do we come out of it's the it's the old phrase that's been fairly widely used to build back better. It's the idea of how do we use the the platform and the springboard that's being created by the need to come out of COVID stronger, by the need to invest and ensure that that investment goes into building a greener and a more equitable societies in in, in individual countries as well as, as say globally. And I and I do think that we've seen a lot of positive statements from many parts of the world in um, many countries, um, which wasn't necessarily always the case, but I think certainly if I look across the major economies, there is a real recognition that if we're going to be spending significant amounts of money on trying to support economic growth subsequent to COVID, that doing that in a way that's consistent with our long run goals, both in terms of green ambitions, but also in terms of societal ambitions to create uh, or to provide support to those parts of societies that, that have you know, have, I think, uh, have have struggled, have have, have have whose weaknesses or whose, if you like, being left behind has to a certain degree been highlighted by COVID. We've seen that, I think, in many ways, COVID has really shone a light on areas of societies that have been disadvantaged and that have fallen further behind, using the recovery to uh, to ensure that the way that we, we grow our way, way out of this, the way that we continue to invest is done not just with climate goals in isolation um, in mind, but also how do we ensure that we use that process to ensure there's equitable growth, societally inclusive growth within individual economies as well. And I think that has been a focus, but I think we have seen that within a number of the, um, the the announcements that have been made. It's the distinction between how do we go from announcements to action? Um, and I think that's part of what what isn't yet still clear. Whether that will become clear at COP, I'm not sure. I think COP will be more of a global sort of discussion rather than a national one. But I think um, with positive agreement and with positive comments, and with, a, with with positive momentum coming from COP, it's likely to accelerate national action uh, as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Andy. couldn't agree more. And thank you so much for taking part. And uh, I hope all your expectations will come good at the end and, and you have a very satisfying COP at the end.
1: <laughs> thank you very much. Absolute pleasure.